Well, hi and welcome. My name is John Harvey. I'm the professor and Hal Wright Chair of Economics at uh, Texas Christian University, and I'll be your guest host for this inaugural episode of the Levy Economics Institute's podcast. The Levy Institute is a nonprofit, nonpartisan public policy research organization and is starting this podcast to create and share conversations in economics and public policy that move beyond conventional approaches. And today I'm joined by James Galbraith, who holds the Lloyd M. Benson Jr. Chair in Government and Business Relations at the University of Texas at Austin and is a senior scholar at the Levy Institute. And if I may add, what a perfect choice for an individual for a podcast that's going to highlight real-world economics and not just outstanding scholarship, but also a, a lifelong attempt on Dr. Galbraith's part to make sure that this doesn't just stay on the pages of journals, but actually gets involved in actual policy in the real world. So thank you, Dr. Galbraith, for agreeing. Let me say one more thing and set up. When they asked if I would do this, I said, yeah, that sounds fantastic. I am way too busy, though, maybe in like March or April. And then they said, well, it's going to be Jamie Galbraith. So, oh, crap. Okay. Yes, I'll do it then. Uh, I, I hate to miss out on this. So, uh, welcome uh, to the first ever Levy broadcast. John, thank you very much. It's a, it's a great pleasure to be with you and a real honor to be uh, inaugurating this series for the Levy Institute. Excellent. Excellent. Well, let, let me, let, let's start then. Let's jump right into it. Let, let's start with a few questions regarding your, your recent policy note in defense of low interest rates. And as I'm sure the listeners are aware, this stands in stark contrast to the advice and action coming from central banks around the world, and, and including our own Federal Reserve. Could you could you give listeners an idea of, of what is it that central bankers think they're accomplishing uh, with all this? Well, okay, let me, let me start first by saying a word for your listeners about uh, what my background has been in this in this area, because this is something that I have had experience with for an awfully long time, really going back to the middle of the 1970s, uh, when uh, the United States Congress mm -hmm. first really became quite serious about uh, bringing the Federal Reserve into uh, a position of accountability to to the Congress as required under the Constitution. And I happened to be on the staff of the House Committee on Banking at that time uh, and uh, was responsible for uh, inaugurating uh, regular hearings on monetary policy, which later became under the Humphrey-Hawkins Act, it later became the, the Humphrey-Hawkins hearings. Um, and uh, these the effect of this was to create essentially a, an ongoing record of uh, Federal Reserve uh, policy and the statements of intention. But it also gives a, an observer an opportunity to assess whether there's, a, you know, there's a, a, a intentions behind the stated intentions. Uh, and so I want to distinguish between those two things. Uh, when the Fed comes up and speaks to the public through the Congress, it's always saying, well, what we're doing is in the public interest or we're fighting inflation, consistent, of course, with our mandate uh, to pursue the highest levels of employment and so on and so forth. Um, it is very hard to reconcile that statement uh, with uh, the actual 
uh, conduct of monetary policy by the Federal Reserve. I mean, you look at this uh, from uh, kind of the uh, the gimlet-eyed uh, uh, standpoint of a of a of a cynical long-term observer. Uh, you can see that the you know, central bankers are, first of all, they're bankers to bankers. Uh, and then what they are responding to are the pressures. They're not people who have. Uh, they're not. Uh, you know, the, it's not a committee of of uh, detached wise men up on a mountain. It's a committee that consists of bankers and professional economists with close uh, contact um, liaison with bankers by and large and what they're they they are attentive above all uh to 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 that constituency uh that gives you a sense of the uh, uh of the of, of the of, i think that's the first thing to to understand secondly uh, they have uh, uh, obligations or commitments. Or they believe have obligations on an, on on uh, uh, in the political space. Uh, sometimes that's informed by their own politics. Uh, sometimes by pressures uh, that hit them. So if there's a major political disaster, they often do react to that. Um, and then they thirdly, man, I don't know. I, I say thirdly, but that's not clear what order these things should be in. Uh, they they do react. They are charged to some sense, at least in their own minds, with assuring the position of the dollar in the world mm -hmm. and the U.S. position at the center of the world financial system. And anything that jeopardizes that would jeopardize the banks and therefore would, it would be something that they defend. So you can factor all of these things in and just be aware that often this talk about inflation uh, is just a way of filtering a set of policy actions through a medium uh, which makes it palatable or, or makes it something that they can deliver to the broad public uh, and give the impression that they're acting in some kind of broader social interest. Right. So so what you're saying is that I know that the um, uh, the policy note that I was mentioning starts off with the discussion of the loanable funds theory of interest as a sort of foundational, um, you know, I guess, model for the Fed. But what you're saying at the outset is here, be careful. I mean, this this is not nearly just about that. Uh, these are certainly academic economists uh, who have, um, you know, the models in their heads about the way the world works, but they also are having particular worldview giving that they are bankers or close to bankers. Uh, and something that is rarely stated that, 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 that you mentioned is the fact that the dollar is such an important part of, of our um, you know, trade policy, the fact that it's the, the top of the hierarchy of, of currencies. Uh, and so, um, I don't know, uh, those of us who are in the classroom exclusively uh, end up talking about here's this model versus this model, but you're talking about a much more nuanced and more realistic approach to what's really sure. going on. Sure. I, I, and it, we can talk about this kind of supply and demand model uh, in a uh, of the of lo what's called loanable funds with supply of savings, demand for investment balanced in something called a capital market, which doesn't exist. Uh, is a pure textbook abstraction that was created many decades ago uh, and uh, really became obsolete with, with, with Keynes in the 1930s. But it lives on in the minds of academic economists who find this something that they can peddle to students. Um, and in the way, again, in the way the di dialogue is framed. And so the, the, the task of, of, uh, of, of an analyst, it seems to me, is to cut through that and say, look, uh, people shouldn't believe this. And we shouldn't also expect uh, or or take for granted that people who are in positions of high responsibility actually do believe it because they're not they're acting for 
generally speaking, for purpose. Uh, so to give a, a, a prominent example from, from you know, living memory anyway, in 1979, uh, President Carter was pressured to appoint a Paul Volcker to become chairman of the Federal Reserve. And Paul Volcker uh, saw it as his responsibility uh, not only to defeat inflation at whatever cost, uh, but also to restore, to protect or to restore the position of the dollar, which had been slipping uh, over the course of the 1970s uh, in relation to the German Deutsche Mark, the Japanese yen at that time. Uh, and uh, you know there was some some concern in those com communities that the dollar might lose its uh, its central position. Well, Volcker put an end to those concerns and, and basically <laughs> established a a regime in which uh, the dollar became the basically the unchallenged uh, reserve currency for the world, uh, and the high dollar policy cemented the strength of the financial sector in the United States at the expense of the industrial sector. Yes, it also put an end to inflation. It may indeed have put an end to the Soviet Union and to the position of the of, of the Soviet bloc in the in the Cold War, and therefore unleashing a, an era of low commodity prices worldwide, which certainly contributed to to, uh, to low inflation in the United States. Uh, the, but what we ended up with was an economy, which was a, an economy of finance, some technology on the West Coast, and uh, a lot of service jobs in between. And so, it, it major restructuring of the economy actually resulted from this leaving us with uh, an economy run that's essentially a country that's essentially run by financial oligarchs and uh, information technology tycoons uh, in a way that was simply very different from, from the country that we had 70, 60 years ago, 50 years ago. Well, and, and you talking about the fact that what they say and, and, and what their real underlying motivations are can be quite different, I think comes up there in that monetarist experiment of 19 you know, uh, October, I think 1979, um, you're arguing that this had a lot more to do with uh, you know keeping the dollar as a central role, but they're saying, oh, it's because we believe MV equals PY and we need to lower M in order to lower P. And, and for, for listeners, it's the, it's the whole uh, uh, printing money causes inflation, which is a ridiculous argument. It's much more nuanced than that. And there's nothing to it. But that was basically the argument they were using uh, not only publicly, but also in print, that they were specifically adopting a monetarist approach and that this is what was going to solve inflation. And, and um, are you suggesting they didn't necessarily believe that? Oh, I'm stating that they didn't. I'm stating yeah, that they yeah, didn't believe it. Yeah, I'm yeah. not saying that there weren't some Chicago-trained monetarist economists in the mix, right. um, and uh, in the Council of Economic Advisors in the Reagan administration, on the staff of the Banking Committee. Some of my friends were Chicago-trained monetarist yeah. economists, but the Federal Reserve, no. Do I think that Paul Volcker was for a single second a disciple of Milton Friedman? No, Paul Volcker yeah. was a uh, a civil servant, uh, New York Fed, United States Treasury, Federal Reserve, uh, who was deeply concerned uh, with the position of the banking sector, the position of the dollar, the position of the country. For him, monetarism, the whole business we're going to target, the money supply, was just cover for a policy of extremely high interest rates, which would effectively uh, uh, change the I mean, change the position of the dollar and change the position of capital with respect to labor inside the country. Let's say crush the unions, uh, and that's what they did. Uh, and they were they weren't. I, I was on the Democratic staff 
uh, banking committee and then staff director of the Joint Economic Committee. So I was working for a uh, liberal Democratic congressman, you know, the social Democratic leanings, Henry Royce of Wisconsin, very, very talented uh, and uh, you know, public spirited man. I liked him very, very much. Um, but I was I was, you know, I was his guy. Do these guys conceal their 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 true position for even from me? Not for a minute. Not for a minute. They were they were completely candid at the staff level, uh, and even at the level of of principals to staff. In other words, uh, chairman of the council of economic advisors, or the uh, to the to the staff director of the joint economic committee. I didn't. I wasn't under any illusions that they were operating from some ideological principle that had been handed down to them by Milton Friedman. No, they were trying to create a deep recession and restore the dollar, and they knew what they were doing, and they did it, and they achieved it. So the, so the whole thing about we are um, trying to lower inflationary expectations also goes out the window. That that this is all just cover for. Well, it, at 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 that time, that was the case. Yeah. When you move along uh, to uh, a figure like Ben Bernanke, uh, yeah. much more recent uh, Federal Reserve Chairman, academic economist, textbook author, and so on and so forth. I mean, there's a whole uh, body of people who I find indecipherable because I, I find it hard to believe that they're so naive as to believe the stuff that they say. But at the same time, uh, there's very little evidence that they aren't. <laughs> so yeah, uh, yeah. it's quite unlike quite unlike uh, a guy like Volcker, or for that matter, his immediate successor, uh, Alan Greenspan, who was an, a master of uh, obscurantism, uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, was, was not he certainly he really wasn't an academic economist of, at all. Um, he had a completely fake PhD, and for for example, New York <laughs> University gave him, um, which was dug out uh, by colleagues of mine at one point. But leaving that aside, he, he was a he was he was a he was a he had a pragmatic streak, yeah. uh, and uh, you know this whether this was true of whether Bernanke firmly believed when he says that Milton Friedman was right or whether he was just being nice to Milton Friedman on an anniversary. I don't, I, I can't really pronounce on that, but. Uh, uh, huh. Well, I, I will have to say a, that I'm going to have to change my intermediate macro lecture um, <laughs> because I was operating under the naive assumption that what they were saying was in fact, what was really behind what they were doing. Um, and of course that's why you, yeah. you you have the faith and faith of, of an upstanding citizen, I have to say. Well, see, and this is what my <laughs> wife has told me for years. I, I would say, you know, well, they just have a different I'm philosophy sure. of life than we do. It's just, no, they're greedy. Uh, and I think now that I believe that she was right, that they're, they're greedy. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, well, that, that could bring us back around to, to right now. Uh, you know, the interesting thing right now with the Fed raising the interest rates and supposedly fighting inflation, they've actually received pushback from from both parties on uh, whether or not this is a logical thing to do, given how much of the price increases are driven by COVID and the, and the Russian invasion. It's like, well, how on earth does lowering demand um, do anything more than, than, than treat a symptom? Uh, but once again, they're sticking to this story that uh, there's an underlying economic logic to this. But you argue that that's not what they're really out to accomplish. That well, again, I, I, I I'm not their, uh, I, I'm not their psychoanalyst. Uh, right. I don't have, uh, I, I'm not sitting to listening to their private confessions. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I can tell you that uh, the uh, Fed staff uh, 
in uh, at the start of the pandemic related price increases uh, said accurately that they wouldn't last all that long. Uh, and there were others, including myself, but I don't, it's, I don't uh, feel badly when people don't listen to me. But <laughs> there were others who said that they, would, they wouldn't last all so long, very long. Did the principals pay attention to their staff? No. Their principals, if they paid it, were paying attention to anybody, they were getting pressure from the likes of, of, of Larry Summers and people who are writing heavyweights who were writing, who had access to the Washington Post and so forth, um, who said you have to be, you have to really clamp down hard. And uh, that's basically what they did. Uh, now, was there is there a beneficiary behind uh, a policy of high interest rates? Yes, the answer to that is people who have money to lend. Uh, as yeah. my father would like to say, they tend to have more money than people who don't have money to lend. <laughs> uh, and uh, in addition to that, uh, banks since 2009 have been receiving interest payments directly on the reserves they hold at the Federal right. Reserve. Right. So when... Uh, interest rates go up uh two groups of two groups of people benefit particularly two groups of entities one is the banks who get uh, essentially what is revenue for doing nothing right. uh and the other is uh, those who hold short-term treasury uh bills uh who get uh you know able to roll over their treasury debt into something which is of higher interest and they like that very much as well it's again money for doing essentially nothing um, and who suffers? Well, people who have who have uh, loans to renew, people who are trying to buy houses, um, and uh, on and on down the list. Now, is this enough to have a significant effect on the inflation rate? The answer is no. Uh, has no effect on the inflation rate that we can see because the inflation rate had already peaked. In June of 2022, the Fed started raising interest rates in March. It had only raised them a little bit by June. Now, the, 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 you know, there were problems that continued to uh, you know, percolate for quite some time, but they, the worst was already over by June of 2022. Uh, so we can say that for sure that the Fed's raising interest rates had no effect, uh, no perceptible effect on the course of inflation that followed. Uh, did it succeed in doing what a rise in inflation interest rates normally does, namely slow the economy, throw people out of work and get rid of inflation that way? The answer to that is also no. Uh, so it didn't even do right. what uh, it, we, what we considered was you know, the ordinary course of monetary policy in the 70s. You raise interest rates, the automobile sales go down, consumer durable sales go down, anything that you're buying on interest stops, uh, those factories shut, and, yeah. uh, wages get stalled out and the inflation rate goes down. And that wasn't what happened either. Uh, so what we've seen, in fact, is that the you know, the job market has remained reasonably strong uh, and uh, the inflation rates come down and things have been pretty much okay, except for this substantial redistribution in the favor of people who have a lot of money. Right. Well, I'm, 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 I'm a very simple-minded person. I say, when you see something happening which has one effect and not much other effect. I'm inclined to think people who know what they're doing uh, wanted that effect to happen. Uh, <laughs> and if they control the lever to make it happen, and then it happens, right. uh, I, I say a simple-minded person is open to the suspicion that this is what they wanted to do. Uh, well, very good. Well, well. So you, you're arguing for lower interest rates. We we know that the the, the logic and and the the motivation behind what's going on right now is not necessarily. Um, 
to our benefit or, or, or based on anything that's uh, reasonable. Okay, well, how, how low, uh, I, I don't know if you give a number per se, but, but how low should the interest rate be in order to encourage what? Well, there isn't one interest rate. And the lever that the Federal Reserve operates with is the interest rate on overnight money lent by banks, ostensibly lent by banks to each other. Um, no, I don't think there's much of that going on. And what is effectively the same thing as the 90-day rate on treasury bills. So a very short-term, very safe asset that uh, has no risk of any kind. Um, and the right interest rate on that is effectively zero. Uh, that is to say, that's, that's essentially money. Uh, and what you want is for that uh, you know, to be lent out uh, to entities that are taking a little more risk, doing things on a long-term basis. Uh, and that for that, you have a structure, a whole term structure of interest rates. In a normal, I mean, you know, um, well-functioning economy, that term structure is what we call upward sloping. That is to say, the long rates are higher than the short rates because they involve more risk and less more chance of illiquidity and so forth. I don't need to be that sharply upward sloping, but yeah, this should be upward sloping. So anyway, that's that's your basic. That's the basically the way a nor, uh, the economy normally functions, uh, and should function. Uh, and what you have to do to ensure that it, that speculators don't run away with uh, too much cheap money is regulate them. You have to have high margin requirements in the stock market, for example, um, and the Fed has regulatory tools or has had them uh, that it's somewhat reluctant to use. Uh, so what has happened actually uh, over you know, my professional life is that a whole structure of uh, of regulations, which kept the financial sector uh, hemmed in in various ways, so that the housing finance was done by savings and loans, and commercial loans were done by commercial banks, and speculative loans could be done by investment banks, but that was with money that was not insured and was basically rich people's money if they lost it, so, so much the worse for them. Uh, you know, that kind of regulatory barriers and compartmentalization, which provided a lot of stability and safety to the economy, was, was taken down. And what was put instead was this one universal tool, yank the interest rate this way or that way. Uh, and that's a very crude instrument. And what it means is that the people who are most vulnerable uh, are the ones who are hit. Uh, and that will typically be uh, it won't be your big corporations. It won't be your big banks. It won't be, it won't be the, uh, uh, you know, it it will be it will it will tend to be people who have, who are have debts who have debts with interest rates that are, you know, that that can go up, uh, people who are in vulnerable positions. So you're basically saying we're gonna we're gonna take it out, take the whatever when we do something that's going to do some harm, it's going to harm the most vulnerable people in the worst way. I don't like that as a way of doing things. Yeah, 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 and, and and related to that, um, you'll hear people argue that well, if we have low interest rates, then those on fixed incomes who do have some some savings uh, could be hurt by that. But there are other ways to address that too, aren't there? I mean, you don't have to earn income as a retired person from interest. Uh, you know, absolutely no reason why we can't uh, adjust Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, and so forth. In the same sense, that interest rates should not be used to discourage speculation. They should not be used to increase the incomes of those uh, on fixed incomes who uh, are, you know, earning income. Well, if you, if you do use the interest rate that way, what you're doing is effectively favoring those people who have a lot of money over those who have a little right. uh, and you're, and those who have it in the most liquid form, 
over those who have taken some risks. Uh, and uh, again, neither of those is a particularly desirable thing. Although if you have a lot of money and it's liquid, that's what you like. And if you're in that position, you're probably more influential than people who are not in that position. So again, the, the what's good policy and 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 what is the the way the wind blows and uh, the kind of voices that whisper in the ears of central bankers are two very different things. Well, you you've brought up several times um, the idea that that what they're saying and what they're doing aren't necessarily the same thing, but but. What about the economic discipline itself? I mean, there are people who do believe these things uh, in, in terms of, of loanable funds and, I don't know, real business cycle theory and so forth. Uh, and, and even people within the mainstream of economics have argued that that mainstream macroeconomics has lost touch with reality. Um, I don't know. Well, I, I guess I'm asking, what, what is your view on, and I think we agree that what's happened in mainstream economics has been bad and it's gone in the wrong direction uh, is, you know, what's gone wrong and is there any chance of saving it, the discipline itself? Uh, well, just to quibble a little bit with the premise of the question, you ask what yeah. has gone wrong. Yeah. Uh, and that suggests that there was a period when it wasn't wrong. Uh, right. And I, 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 I want to beg to differ that uh, the, the, uh, uh, at least if you go back uh, 150 years uh, to the 1870s, uh, then from that point forward, uh, with a, with with a significant but but impermanent uh, exception of the Keynesian Revolution from the 30s through the 70s, uh, from that point forward, uh, economics got itself locked into a way of thinking, uh, which was essentially pre-scientific, which essentially harked back to the 18th century and before, um, and really to 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 the ideas of like pre-revolutionary France, even pre-revolutionary France got their ideas from imperial China. I mean, a <laughs> long uh, tradition of, 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 of what was essentially theological thinking of one kind or another. Uh, and what is the basis of that view? It's the view that there that a system uh, is has a tendency toward equilibrium, a tendency toward balance, or if you like, uh, harmony under the uh, under, under the celestial uh, uh, emperor and so forth. This is a uh, this was a very congenial view. Uh, in the days of the Ancien Regime, and, but it somewhat got upset by the French Revolution, uh, just to take <laughs> a historical example. Uh, and it's, uh, it, it is out of step, step with every significant development in modern science, beginning, uh, well, with the era that is really marked in it by the publication of Darwin's Origin of Species in 1859, the development of, of essentially an evolutionary perspective. Um, but that evolutionary perspective is not limited to biology. Physics has the same. Uh, it is, you know, we now we now understand that the universe is not an eternal thing, that it has uh, it has an origin in uh, presumably in the Big Bang. Uh, it has a, a physical processes or uh, they, they move through time. Above all, um, from the late 19th century onward, uh, we've come to an understanding of something called the second law of thermodynamics, uh, which invests everything in uh, you know in time uh, in the tendency of, of entropy to increase and an understanding that a life process, is tapping in to the entropy flow. 
Uh, you have to you basically low entropy is 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 a desirable state which takes effort uh, to maintain and which tends to dissipate if it's not maintained. All of this this gives you a, a very different perspective. It tells you that resources are extremely important. Uh, they cannot just simply be substituted away. You, you if if a key resource is uh, becomes expensive, then it, you know changing to something else can be very difficult and maybe even impossible. Um, it tells you that in order to take advantage of resources, you have to make a fixed investment, something that classical economists knew, but you try to find that in a, in a general equilibrium model, you won't see it there. Um, and making fixed resource, making a fixed investment itself requires resources. I mean, the basic, it tells you that all all structures, biological structures, mechanical structures, social structures, are built up according to plans, plans which may be uh, genes or may be blueprints or may be laws and habits and institutions are all of the same general form. They do evolve over time, but they are, that's a, uh, that's a, uh, you know, a relatively slow process. So what do you get from taking that perspective? You get the, the uh, an understanding that there is no such thing as equilibrium. And you simply can't reconcile that with the way in which uh, particularly, well, from the 1870s, but especially from the 1970s, the way in which this notion of general equilibrium took over, first of all, microeconomics, all this business about you know interdependent markets, self-regulating, yada, 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 uh, and macroeconomics, which has been struggling. Uh, and uh, you, know, you mentioned Paul Romer and his view that macroeconomics has kind of <laughs> disgraced itself. Well, this is the problem <laughs> with macro. You can't, you can't uh, look at a system uh, from that point of view and make sense of it. And efforts to do so are going to run into one kind of a problem or another. So the whole structure of mainstream economics, I would argue, is, uh, uh, you know, is, is out of touch with the way in which Every other discipline uh, in natural science and in social science, like anthropology or history or sociology, understand the world, uh, and that you know that shows up in the structure of our universities. What are economics departments? They're very self-contained uh, entities. They don't tend to intersect. Maybe a little bit with political science because they tend to send sort of their lesser epigones out to become political scientists, uh, but. You know, they have very little contact with with natural science, with physics, with biology, uh, very little with 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 other other sciences, which are essentially evolutionary in nature. And so they they really operate in their own little space. And then they maintain their positions by very, very rigid uh, professional rules. Uh, so you know, to be a highly ranked department, you basically only promote people who have publications in five journals, uh, two of which are house journals, Harvard, Chicago, and the other three are the major association journals, all controlled very strictly by editors. And it's not to say there's no difference of opinion, but it's extremely narrow. Uh, and everybody who wants to be, you know, have a career has to be somehow uh, fitted in uh, to those paradigms. And if they aren't, they'll get screened out. So you have this discipline, which is basically stuck in a pre-scientific frame of mind, protecting itself within uh, uh, you know, a university structure uh, and actively excluding uh, the diversity of, uh, of approaches, which are in fact much more closely attuned 
with um, you know with 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 uh, modern scientific tradition. This is the problem of mainstream economics. It seems to me, it's really a very very systemic systemic problem. Well, and if I may do a plug for my own university, we actually have a course on contending perspectives in economics, which is extremely rare, and we require it of all majors. Now, having said that, guess who in the department doesn't think it's a really good idea? Uh, mm -hmm. And those are, of course, the younger neoclassical economists. So it has been a, a, a fight to keep it relevant, uh, to, to, to lock it in with other programs and so forth. So they can't simply say, well, why can't we have another econometrics course instead? And sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can see this in and the way what has happened over the last decades with to economic history, uh, and to the history of economic thought, uh, all of which are have have dropped by the wayside by a large. If economic history still exists, it's mostly in history departments rather than than economics departments. Uh, history of economic thought, uh, so far as I know, isn't taught. At, at the University of Texas at Austin, except uh, occasionally when I do an undergraduate seminar and touches on it. Uh, so these are uh, this this is a way of trying to ensure uh, that people who come up in economics are uh, are are let's say conditioned uh, to accept the premises of the mainstream of the mainstream view and to be highly dismissive, contemptuous even of alternative uh, perspectives. Uh, and again, it's, it's that's I think the you know when you when you draw your economists from that space, you are going to practically guarantee uh, that they will practically never get anything right. Um, so uh, let me you know, just I mean I, 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 I'm 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 producing a small catalog of these things for for a book project, but it's you know just to 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 take an example. Uh, they, uh, a very important debate uh, in the last year and a half uh, has been over the policy of sanctions with respect to Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you look at what the economists said, and I'm thinking in particular I, 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 uh, of a, an economist, a chief economist for the United States Treasury Department, works for a very distinguished economist, Janet Yellen, who is the Secretary of the Treasury, who um, put out a, a, a document on this subject. And, and what this report did was to take the neoclassical production function. Okay, so okay, there's capital, there's labor, and there's technology. Uh, and they said, okay, so with sanctions, Russia's not getting any capital because uh, Western firms are leaving Russia. And uh, because a lot of uh, you know young people who didn't particularly like the policy have left Russia, about a few hundred thousand of them did, uh, it's losing labor. Oh, and then finally, uh, it it's losing technological capacity, uh, entrepreneurship, and it's becoming under the state. And therefore, uh, the sanction policy is going to bring the Russian economy essentially to its knees. Uh, well, <laughs> you know, the sanction policy did have a very sharp effect on Russia. Everybody agrees, including the Russians, uh, including the Russian Academy of Sciences. And it has a report which says this very clearly. But the question is what happens next? And as a simple matter of business economics, which any businessman could tell you, the first thing you look at is what what are the profit opportunities? When you say, okay, we're going to make the we're not going to we're going to block Russia from selling natural gas, so we'll have to sell it at home at a lower price, and we're going to um, 
take a lot of Western firms and force them to sell their Russian uh, factories and equipment to Russians at a very steep discount. And we're going to, uh, you know, uh, you know, maybe some people leave, but there are plenty of people in the Russian educational system are going to come up and take those positions. People are, are easy to relatively easy to replace. Uh, and guess what? Recovery happens very fast. Uh, and oh, by the way, uh, you know, maybe Nissan leaves, but uh, but the Russians establish a, 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 their own uh, automobile label and invite the Chinese to design it. And then a year or two later, it's up and running. Automobiles, aircraft, uh, semiconductors, all kinds of things. Uh, and with China, even more so. So you have to say, okay, you have a neoclassical perspective on this issue. It gave you an answer, which is part of a document that is, uh, you know, a United States Treasury statement of its view, and therefore presumably informed by the intelligence community and everybody else who has input into these things. And everything about it turned out to be wrong. <laughs> How can this be? It's not because we don't have information about what's happening. In fact, the information was good. It's because the, 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 what was applied to that information was an economic sensibility, a modeling structure, which says oh, that we understand how equilibria are set. And we right. have a, having given the system a really big kick, it's going to be on a lower equilibrium. Uh, well, <laughs> no, uh, what, what really happens is businesses take advantage of opportunities. And the Russia of today is not the Soviet Union of 40 years ago. It's essentially a business, a business uh, economy. So uh, again, a little common sense about how life actually works Right. Uh, will will give you a better sense. Uh, you know what could go on. I mean, my friends in the in the modern monetary theory uh, movement have been uh, in that grouping. And I'm, I'm very sympathetic to their position. They, they they've also basically made a uh, uh, a very good uh, business out of uh, applying common sense and understanding of how financial mar markets actually work, uh, and it, contradicting the this loan funds theory and the monetarist theory, the textbook models. Uh, and one set of answers is typically wrong. And the other set of, of answers is typically clo very close to the mark. So this is, again, uh, this is, this is the, the, the advantage of having a theory, which is, which is connected to the real world is substantial. Right, right, right. Yeah. There, there's a, um, you're talking about general equilibrium. There's a Christina Romer um, encyclopedia entry online on business cycles. And when you get about halfway through the article, she says, by the way, there isn't such a thing as business cycles um, because the economy, she says, most economists, uh, and apparently I'm not most economists, uh, believe that there is a level of equilibrium called full employment at which the economy could stay forever. And she literally says that. Uh, and I have quoted it over and over and over. Here is an, an article from a mainstream economist on business cycles that says business cycles don't exist. Sometimes stuff happens. Now, well, you, you, I have to, I have to say on, on that, the, the, uh, the, the, no, the invocation of a, of, of a consensus of economists is always something to be extremely wary of. Right. It right. was just before the crisis in 2008 when the American Economic Association was holding a session on how the world came to consensus on monetary policy. So they, oh, really? Okay, guys. Yeah. Well, so <laughs> they, I mean, uh, how they went ahead with that session in January of 2009. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I wish I'd been there, but I think I was busy trying to advise the Congress how to how to dig themselves <laughs> out of the hole at that mm -hmm. time. Uh, the uh, 
uh, the, the uh, uh, Robert Mundell, uh, who had in many ways very interesting views on a lot of things, uh, mm-hmm. said that you should never take an unweighted poll of economic economist <laughs> opinion. <laughs> That's funny. Well, you said you were talking about uh, um, the training of students and people who have been trained this specific way. You tend to get a certain mindset coming out. There's also a great deal of self-selection going on. I mean, it's little wonder that 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 compared to almost every other discipline in the academy, we are the most white male. Um, and and um, I, I think that if, if I'm a person of color or a woman sitting in an intro class, hearing that, you know, well, what the market does is objective and that's how it rewards people, then I'm done with economics. Uh, I'm not moving any further along in this discipline. Uh, Do you have an opinion on why economics has struggled so much to attract women and people of color relative to the natural sciences who have done a much better job? The, the, The days of of, of, you know, women don't have the math skills because there was the um, self-fulfilling prophecy on the part of teachers who uh, thought that, you know, well, this young lady doesn't need to learn fractions properly. She's going to be married one day. Hopefully those days are largely gone. So, so that's not an excuse anymore. And what the economics discipline has said is women aren't as good. Everything that the neoclassical discipline has said about why we're so white male has been victim blaming. Um, that, you know, well, either they don't know the math skills, women care too much about grades, women don't care about economics in particular. Uh, do you have a, a view on that and, and the connection between what's screwed up about our discipline and... and um... I You know, I'm not in an economics department. Uh, I thank my lucky stars. <laughs> um, so I observe this from the outside uh, and I read uh, people like Claudia Sam, uh, who's spoken on with great eloquence and effect for this. Um, And what I sense uh, from what they say is that this is a discipline that, among other things, protects itself uh, by uh, uh, taking a strongly dismissive and belittling attitude uh, to outsiders. Uh, So uh, that is a uh, something which uh, if you approach the discipline from uh, the standpoint of a, um, uh, you know, of a, 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 a let's say a, a, an identity which is slightly outside, you're going to run into a real question of, of uh, let's say, um, presumptive lack of loyalty to the to the scheme of things, which is exists to justify existing hierarchies. And the, the discipline itself is something of a microcosm of what it's saying about the larger society, right? If the market is giving you the correct answer, then surely the hierarchy of the economics profession is giving you a correct answer. But this is very strange because the hierarchy of the economics profession is the one of the most rigidly authoritarian institutions in 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 uh, in the life of certainly in American life, and I think it's true in Europe as well, it's extremely authoritarian, hierarchical, and not market determined. And right. of course, it has privileges and access to resources, which it very jealously guards. Uh, and so, you cannot understand it, uh, you know, as a as the output of the kind of process that it pretends to describe. Uh, so, this has got going to to I mean that's I think all part of the of a, a cultural phenomenon of, which is really very 
very sad, really, and very, very troubling. Uh, but it's not just that. I mean, the, the, the economics profession then reaches out and has, you know, there's a committee on the status of women in the economics profession and so forth, has been for a long time. My father was involved when it, when it was first established. Uh, um, but uh, the filters against ideological diversity are even stronger. Uh, those are those are really absolute, uh, and what you'll find is that someone who happens to be both uh, in, to fit into two boxes uh, to say have a critical perspective and a non-majority identity is going to be doubly troubled. So, you know, you know, talk 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 to the the radical feminists out there, the feminists out there who are you know truly in that mode, and you'll find that they're you know not some of them survive in the profession, but uh, but they they really went through hell in order to do that. Well, it's funny you should mention the um, uh, idea that, that that we're trying to protect our, our, our past and ancestry. Paul Romer, the one who wrote the article about uh, the, the state of, of macroeconomics, I ran into him at a conference and was asking him about the paper, and he said that the criticisms he got had nothing to do with what he said. It had to do with how could you say such a thing about Milton Friedman? How could you say such a thing about, about so-and-so? Uh, and he actually ended up backing off a little bit, but he was really taken aback apparently that he couldn't believe that people were more upset. How could you say this about our revered you know, ancestor uh, as opposed to, well, I don't think you're right. Oh. Um, well, uh, saying rude things in the tombs of saints is one of the most uh, uh, <laughs> serious infractions uh, in the economics economics profession. It's okay if you throw someone again like my father out of the profession who wasn't really an economist. He was the most prominent economist uh, in of his generation and the best selling one, I think, in all history. Leaving aside what you know, the sales of Karl Marx and the Soviet Union, uh, which were somewhat subsidized, uh, shall we say. Uh, but they, uh, uh, I got my copy of Capital for a couple of pounds from <laughs> from from Roman and Littlefield in uh, the 1970s when they yeah. just put in a page that it was actually published by Progress Publishers Moscow. Uh, so anyway, uh, <laughs> but you know, they, they, my father's books were sold on their own, uh, you know, right. at, at, at retail prices. Um, <laughs> the uh, uh, so uh, it's one thing to do that, but then to say something disrespectful of the people uh, who framed the discipline. Uh, and it's not just Milton Friedman, but you know, there's Paul Samuelson and others. Uh, and one of the things interesting about that uh, is that it shows you that the ideas of the basic core ideas of textbook economics have not really evolved in 50 or 60 years. Uh, they are still dominated. If you think about what's the core, prop, the core uh, doctrine underlying microeconomics, it's the Aro de Bru, uh, uh model of general equilibrium as it's understood very imperfectly uh, by people who really have never, mostly never read it. Um, if you ask what is the what is the core idea of growth theory, it's it's Solo's growth model and then various elaborations on it. Uh, Again, the foundations of economic analysis, Samuelson, 1948, uh, and the, the MIT department of the 60s and 70s. The things have not changed very much inside, uh, uh, inside uh, uh, mainstream economics. And that is because they really can't change. They really can't admit that they should diversify their ideas, that they should take out in some new directions. Uh, and without, without questioning you know the validity of things they've been doing for 50 years 
Uh, and so you now have, uh, in some sense, a kind of a whole series of, of what I would argue are intellectual dead ends. Uh, and they constant and and certainly this partly because people of our generation, frankly, John, are still are still running the show uh, mm -hmm, to a substantial mm -hmm, extent mm -hmm. in this area. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, they, they will not let people come up behind them who are significantly different. Uh, right. One of the things I say about and one of the things you notice about modern monetary theory, which is extremely interesting, is that how how it's attacked viciously. Uh, yeah. As and in terms of the utmost contempt by most uh, by people who are based at places like Harvard or other you know, or the New York Times, uh, and uh, yet without ever naming the uh, without or citing Stephanie Kelton or Randall Ray or Warren Mosler, the other people who have written on this subject, uh, and without ever engaging. Uh, with their arguments in a serious way. Occasionally there's a debate, uh, but in terms of written stuff, it's, it's very, very rare that you will see. I read, you know, Professor Kelton and she said something and let me take her to, right. to task on this. Why not? Because once you start doing that, you have to say, well, I better teach it in my classes. I better put a reading on my reading list. I better maybe yeah. mention it in a textbook in a serious way. Oh, and by the way, if we have an assistant professorship or associate professorship, uh, maybe there's someone from this school who should be added to our department so our students can be exposed to these ideas. And this is what they can't abide. This is what they're really afraid of. Uh, and you can tell by the by again by the by the approach they take to it that that's the concern. That's fundamentally. It's not that they're in they're, 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 they see this as a particular threat to the to the policy space, because yeah. uh, if they think about it seriously, theory is what what it describes actual monetary right. uh, central bank policy. That's what it's all about. Yeah. It's about admitting them into the some of the resource preserves that the mainstream mainstream economics actually controls. So, so if you if you engage in a real uh, in a honest, realistic way, you've invited them in. Um, of uh, course, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so and take sure. it seriously. You, you you mentioned, you know, since the professionalization of, of economics, since the, the I guess the marginal revolution, the 1870s forward, that it's been on the wrong track. And you mentioned Keynes as an exception, but also the um but 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 uh, I guess that ended up being a sort of an isolated uh, in, in some respects, isolated intellectually, but in terms of the actual impact on American policies, it actually had, you know, look at the MBER. Uh, being founded, at least half founded by institutionalists and institutionalist ideas. Um, well, I, I guess what I'm curious about is why you didn't mention the institutionalists. Oh, the institutionalists were the dominant force yeah. in the economics of the 20th century in the United States as a practical matter. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they predate Keynes. Uh, they are at the foundation of the of the New Deal policy, and they carry on through the 1950s and into the 1960s. Uh, they uh, and of course, my father is a uh, often classed as an institutionalist. So he's somewhat uh, sui generis. He's somewhat of a figure standing in his own in his own space, uh, but he's certainly more closely uh, associated with the institutionalists than with 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 any other 
uh, distinct school. So yes, all the institutions that we have are in fact institutionalist institutions. I mean that, <laughs> that and that was true not only and was true of the Federal Reserve. It's true of the way the Federal Reserve Act's been uh, was drafted and amended. Uh, is true of the regulatory institutions. Uh, the you know the the Securities and Exchange Commission and true of the Federal Trade Commission. True of the whole right. range of things that still still exist. Uh, so. Uh, that's absolutely correct. They were, however, driven out of the dominant heights of academic economics. Uh, and basically, they weren't extirpated per se, but they tended to to continue to to prop to the work in institutions which simply don't have the same level of visibility, don't have the same access to the national to, to the national media, and they lost a kind of their distinctive, uh, voice. It still it still goes on. I mean, I have been a president of the Association for right, Revolutionary right. Economics. I'm very proud of that. I, yeah. I, I'm a recipient of the Veblen Commons Prize. I'm extremely proud of that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so these are these are uh, ongoing traditions. Uh, but uh, again, it, it, when we talk about mainstream economics, it's simply don't acknowledge their existence. Right. Mainstream economics used to acknowledge the existence of a Marxist radical perspective. At the end of the Cold War, they decided they could dispense with that. They haven't appointed a Marxist anywhere since. But for a while, uh, it was, you know, this was something you sort of had to do uh, to to retain a little bit of credibility in a world where the Soviet Union existed as a as a, as a serious competing uh, power. Uh, okay, so uh, Keynes, what happened with Keynes? Uh, Keynes uh, had a particular vision which was a the vision of a monetary economist in an evolutionary spirit, closely aligned with with John R. Commons. It was the American economist he was probably closest to, um, and uh, he got uh, boiled down basically by Samuelson and successors into something which could be could 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 add as a little bit of a gloss. On a, what was fundamentally a neoclassical mainstream perspective, so the neoclassical synthesis with what my Henry Royce used to call needle valves, monetary fiscal that you played with to adjust the the, the structure of the, of the of the machine, or the, the not the structure, but the but the the, the uh, settings of the machine. Uh, so then that's that's the macroeconomics that I think Paul Romer said is. You know, basically disintegrated. That uh, was came under attack. It wasn't terribly coherent to begin with. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, of course, the microeconomists never liked it, and they basically gobbled it up. And now you have what DSGE and other absurd formulas becoming the kind of standard uh, thing that that mainstream macroeconomists are supposed to do. Uh, so again, uh, all of that operates in in a space where where into which the institutions are that actually do work to govern our lives, which right. are mainly staffed by lawyers because they're basically about legal structures. Uh, those, these things hardly figure. It's a very right. Right. peculiar uh, and, uh, you know, and no, nobody would design this except as a way of protecting an otherwise indefensible uh, kind of elite structure in academic life. Well, I, I made a, a, speaking of institutions and not being able to incorporate them, I made a blog post once on how money growth does not really cause inflation. Uh, went through various assumptions and, and that that mm -hmm. classic Friedman article with the helicopter and so forth. And, and a, a really nice, pleasant gentleman, a PhD from University of Chicago, engaged with me. 
Uh, and I kept asking him, well, how does the Federal Reserve um, increase the money supply beyond an individual's money demand? What tool do they have? Well, it's like a fireplace when you put too many logs in it. No, 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 no. But I want to know what is the policy tool? Which policy tool do they use to force money on people that don't want extra money? Uh, well, it's like when you plant an orchard of trees. Uh, and this went on for quite some time until finally he said, I guess we have to agree to disagree. But, but he, he, I said, I'm asking a very simple. I just want to know in the real world, how does this happen? Well, I guess we must agree to disagree. Uh, and and um, that was a very, well, it was my greatest moment as an economist, I have to tell you, because I felt really good that I got to engage <laughs> straight up with a monetarist and, and they were unable to answer the questions. Um, but, you know, that is, is a, you know, an example of, of uh, my God, you got a PhD in this. At what point did you have a class where you talked about exactly which policy it is that has the helicopter dropping the money out? Um, and apparently there wasn't one. Well, it's, uh, I, um, one of my closest friends in all of life was a guy by the name of Bob Auerbach, who was a PhD from the University of Chicago, and my colleague on the banking committee in the 1970s. We shared an office, the secretary. And one day he called me, he said, I got some reporters here. You got anything you want to tell them? I said, just tell them I, whatever you said. Well, I disagree with you. Uh, <laughs> this was the, but, uh, you know, the government can, in fact, write checks to people. It can, as it did in COVID, put a lot of money in people's pockets. Oh, yes. And this is what upset people like Larry Summers, said, gee, so many people have so much money in their pockets, they're going to go out and spend, and we're going to have a terrible inflation, which won't stop as a result, because expectations will be on it, disanchored, all this stuff. Well, you know, this takes doesn't take account of the institutional framework within which the American household now lives. This is not the 19th century. This is not a bunch of of you know, of, of cash star families who who you, you give them a, a, a Christmas bonus and they go out and 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 spend more at the pub or whatever it is. Uh, these people have bank accounts, uh, and the money goes into the bank account where it piles up until it's needed, and they can they're they're not short-term people they can see that the the, the the assistance is limited that the prospects for employment are uncertain so they meet their their basic commitments uh and then they draw down that balance uh as they need it and there's no effect on it there's no excess demand going on here the only place in fact there's not really even very much in, for most households wasn't even all that much savings because they were replacing incomes that they were had previously earning in the right. services sector yeah. Where the savings piled up was amongst the top 25%. And why was that? Because our incomes, your income and my income, we yeah. were on salary. Yeah. We didn't change. Did we get a little bit of support? Yeah, a little bit, not much. Yeah. Uh, what did we do? We stopped going out. We stopped going to restaurants. We stopped uh, you know, going to barbershops. We stopped doing a lot of things. And as a result, we weren't spending. So yeah. now what? Now it goes into well, I don't know. Maybe you maybe you bought a condo or something like that. You have you bought a capital asset. A lot of people bought cars. You bought durable goods uh, to uh, absorb that. Well, that costs supply chain problems for sure. Uh, supply chain problems from things coming from China. This the price isn't going up very much, except maybe shipping rates are. So you have a little bit of that. Uh, but that's all. First of all, very transitory. And secondly, if you're buying an existing house. You're driving up the price of an asset. You're not driving right. up the price of a newly produced good. 
Uh, so the fact that this is contained in the CPI is a bit of a is a problem. It's not. A, it doesn't ref, it reflect what 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 the monetarists would call inflation, which is increasing price of newly produced goods and services. So again, all of this was the story that that was told by our monetarist friends and their neoclassical epigones. Uh, was one which was not based on an understanding of the institutions within which we live. Once you start working your way through those in detail, you see, well, that story really doesn't hold. And what will happen by and large is that the surge of prices will go away unless there's a new set of shocks, uh, for example, to resource costs. And we can't rule that out. In fact, I think it's very likely to happen. Uh, but that is also not a demand problem. That has to do with what's happening out in the Permian Basin uh, and, and and elsewhere. Well, and, and absolutely, um, fiscal policy can create more money. Uh, I guess what the monetarist argument was that, yeah, that, that monetary policy, that the Fed can somehow increase incomes, uh, which they guess they can if they buy the assets of the rich people, but nevertheless. So yeah, well, um, what what the, what they're what they're talking about basically is when the Fed goes and buys uh, securities from the banking sector, but right. that's replacing one asset with another. It's Precisely. replacing an asset which has some some capital risk with an asset that doesn't. Right. Banks right. like that. Uh, that's what they did in the great financial crisis and money creation. There was a lot of talk about how much inflation would result out of uh, out of that, and the answer was zero. Right, right, right. Now, the 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 uh, old Freeman article with the helicopter flying over and dropping out the money, to make it accurate, you need to have the helicopter land, have the pilot sneak into the person's house, replace a $100 financial asset with $100 cash, then get back on the helicopter and fly away. But that's not the same thing. You have an increased income. You've changed the form of an asset. Right. Um, right. The, the other thing you mentioned was about uh, uh, talking about mainstream economics not wanting to engage just in case we accidentally let somebody in the door. Uh, we had Douglas North come and speak at my university some years ago. And, uh, you know, the new institutionalist stuff, I guess, is apparently somewhat selected, or I'm sorry, accepted within neoclassicism. And, you know, having been taught by institutionalists myself uh, at the University of Tennessee, all of whom had originally come from the University of Texas, um, I brought up I made the mistake of bringing up institutionalism and, and uh, you know, the angry response you mentioned that Larry Summers has to MMT, I basically got the same thing from Douglas North. So that, uh, well, no, of course, this has nothing to do with the institutionalism uh, that had evolved in the U.S. Uh, yeah. This was another uh, device used to marginalize the more original traditions in economics. And that is the, the use of the word new uh, uh -huh. To uh, on top of, of 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 a previously used word, new institutionalism, <laughs> new Keynesianism was yeah. another example of that. Uh, new classicism uh, was yeah. another. So it, it, once you have those words, it's I call this vampire terminology because it sucks <laughs> the blood out of the original word. People then say, "Okay, Douglas North was an institutionalist of a new type," uh, and then they stop asking what the old type was right, or, right. or in fact you and i have to identify ourselves as old institutionalists which i don't mind doing but it yeah. uh, but uh, obviously new is better than old in many right, people's minds right. although although at my age i no longer think so uh <laughs> the uh, uh uh but nevertheless i mean that's that's where you are I mean, with the with the new yeah. keynesians do they have anything to do with keynes have you ever read no. keynes no yeah. No. Did they understand where Keynes was coming from on monetary financial issues? They had not the slightest clue. Not the slightest clue.
Right. Uh, and right. uh, you know, someone who 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 got, who got my canes at Cambridge from people like Nicholas Keldor, this drove me nuts. Right, right. Well, I, I've got one more thing here. I jotted down. The last time I saw you in person was was in Chicago before COVID. My wife and I were sitting at the hotel bar, and and you came over to show us some pictures you'd found while you've been going through your father's uh, boxes at uh, Harvard. And it was a picture you said you, you you had totally forgotten about. I don't even know if you remembered it. You and your brother in a picture with Jacqueline Kennedy uh, in India. Uh, and I wonder if you'd found anything else like that interesting as you'd gone through your father's papers. Well, uh, first of all, I, I suspect that picture was something I actually just encountered on the internet as I was going <laughs> through. Uh, so I uh, said, so who, who is that little toe-headed, red-headed kid. And, well, it was me, Fate Porsiqui with Mrs. Kennedy on, on, her, on her visit. Uh, this guy's a thing. Was, you, you, if, you, if you had the kind of childhood I did, you do tend to find traces of it uh, here and there on the, on the internet. Uh, but that said, um, one of the, maybe the best thing I ever did uh, it was a couple of weeks after my father passed away in 2006. Uh, Richard Parker, his biographer, and I went over to the archivist at the Kennedy Library. And Dad had deeded all his papers to the library in the middle 60s, not, I suspect, suspecting that they would be continuing to accumulate for 50 years, um, <laughs> which they did. Yeah. Uh, and the library had, you know, eventually they would they would pick them up from my parents' house in a truck and take them over to the warehouse. And they were piled up there in big boxes. They never sorted through them. They no, they weren't open. So right. I said, look, that was 97 and a half. In two and a half years will be his 100th birthday. In, in that time, you can sort through, declassify, catalog, and open everything to the public. And if that happens, we, we of course, don't, uh, uh, this is a gift to the taxpayers. We don't, we don't, uh, uh, claim any rights to it at all. So they did. Uh, they hired 30 people. Uh, they got everything in order, 750,000 pages, uh, and opened them on his 100th birthday. And this has become uh, a uh, a real kind of uh, a, well, a remarkable thing uh, in that it, now the fruits of this are beginning to be apparent. Well, I, I, I have a Oh, it's over there. Uh, a lovely book that a French scholar uh, just published, uh, um, Alexandra Chirat, on my father's work from the 30s to this through the 80s on his ideas. Um, and that was done in the archives. This one here, I really cannot recommend too highly. It's by a young um, historian at the University of Kansas. The title is The Poverty of the World, and yeah. it's by a, a historian at the University of Kansas called Sheda Jahanbani. Uh, and what, what she does is something which has, which I think no one had done before, uh, which is to take the, uh, the issue of poverty and to trace the conception of poverty in the domestic and international spheres uh, in the United States uh, from the 30s through the 60s, essentially, um, and uh, show how closely connected they were. Uh, and a key player in all of this, as it turns out, was my father, something I really didn't, hadn't really appreciated myself, although there are elements that she writes about that come from, that I remember from my own childhood. But my father's big book, The Affluent Society, the first really major, that's not the first breakthrough, but it was, it was the biggest breakthrough book, um, was originally going to be entitled Why People Are Poor. 
Uh, and it was informed by, uh, among other things, as, as John Bonney shows, his experiences in Europe in 1945 on the strategic bombing survey. Europe was desperately poor. In India in the 19, in 1955, when he went for a number of months. Uh, and then, you know, what it, what it shows us is that the concept of development and underdevelopment actually emerges from concepts concepts of poverty in the United States uh, and uh, feeds back uh, as becomes the motivating force behind Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty in the 1960s. So this is a story of, of, that brings that makes a kind of intellectual coherence out of things right. which have been uh, separated in economics, development studies and and advanced country studies. And uh, I think there's very, very little in anybody's curriculum that would tie these two things together. Um, and it's a, you know, as I say, it's a it's a product from uh, this particular scholar from her having having access and spending a lot of time uh, going through my father's papers and you know all the correspondence with uh, with leading figures of the time and uh, his experience, uh, as I say, is again reflecting on on the strategic bombing survey and on right. on uh, Indian independence and so forth. So I, I find that that actually is a it's a gift. Uh, to the intellectual history of the world, uh, which uh, uh, I was just extremely, extremely pleased to see. Oh, that's very exciting. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, can you think of anything else you want to talk about, Jamie? I have... Oh, well, I, we're showing, showing, showing off books. I'll just show you a couple more to give you an idea of, of, yeah. of, of, of the reach. Again, this is really about my father rather than myself, but here are, here are two of four books uh, that have just been published. This is the Age of Uncertainty, oh, the yeah. Anatomy of Power, uh, which have just been brought out in in Mandarin in China oh, for the first time. So ah. uh, again, uh, what we hope will be a very large market, since there are a billion people in it. And, uh, yeah. uh, 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 the, uh, but it's exceedingly interesting to me how uh, these ideas, which are ideas about uh, way in which an economy is actually organized uh, and the role of uh, industrial corporations in particular uh, with their management of technology and their uh, their their management of human resources and the planning and so forth uh, has emerged in certain parts of the world as a really leading uh, vision of how things you know, properly best done. Uh, and that contrasts with the, uh, you know, the previous uh, socialist planning model, which had obvious limitations in terms of its ability to supply the broad, uh, you know, consumer economy that uh, countries wanted to have. And with the so-called free market model of the Anglo-American Anglo sphere and the economics profession. Uh, and when you, when you realize, uh, that, you know, that if you start looking around the world in a serious way, uh, you realize that the main doctrines that are taught by conventional classical, neoclassical mainstream economists in the United States are very provincial. Mm -hmm. They're really not the doctrines that dominate the more successful, uh, rapidly advancing societies in the world. Uh, never were, never will be. Uh, they're doctrines that are are, are been imposed on uh, on um, you know two in particular the United States and the United Kingdom, two rather wealthy, rather finance dominated economies, uh, but which uh, would strike uh, let's say someone who seriously studies 
China, Japan, or Korea, or post-war Germany, post-war France, uh, as having been, you know, as really being very peculiar and very provincial. And so one thing I think, one way I think to, to break the monopoly, if you like, of a, of, of, of a uh, kind of uh, dying doctrine, I would hope would be a dying set of doctrines, uh, is to is is to expand the comparative perspective and to 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 try and bring the rest of the rest of the world in and try and understand what actually is going on there and why. Mm -hmm. Stop deciding that if we thought it up, it must be a great idea. Uh, and why the hell isn't everyone else doing it? Um, well, thank you so much for talking with us today, Jamie. And to our listeners, we hope you've enjoyed this first episode. Please give us a rating and let us know your thoughts in the comments and keep an eye out for our future releases. We have some great conversations lined up in the coming months. You can, you can follow the Levy Institute on Twitter, X, uh, Instagram, and Facebook at Levy Econ. You can also subscribe to the Institute's newsletter at levyinstitute.org. Please see the show notes for some of our recommended publications for further reading on this topic, as well as useful information on how to keep up with new releases. Stay tuned. Thank you.